Welcome back to Season 2 of Serious Epidemiology. I am Matt Fox from Boston University, and I am joined once again by my friend and co-host, Dr. Haley Bannock from the University of Buffalo. Haley, welcome back to Season 2. Thanks, Matt. I am so excited to be here uh, recording this with you. It's, I think we have a really great season lined up, and um, I'm looking forward to all that I'm going to learn and, and all the information we can share with our listeners this season. And so um, we should start off then by telling the listeners that in season two of our podcast, we are devoting this season in its entirety to the brand new edition of Modern Epidemiology Edition 4, which is hot off the presses. And I think many of our listeners will have already gotten their copy and are busily reading away. Uh, And so what we wanted to do is we thought that this season, Haley and I would read through the fourth edition. Uh, We have both obviously read through at least one prior edition. Uh, I have, I know that I personally have read through all of the previous editions. I don't know if you have or haven't, Haley. I have not. Um, That sounds like an interesting project that I wish I had time for, but I have very thoroughly gone through the third edition several times, highlighted on top of my highlights, added notes on top of notes in the margins, but but I've really only delved into the third edition and now and now the fourth. So I'm I'm really excited about that. And so our plan is to uh, go through each chapter, and what we'll do is we'll have one or maybe two episodes per chapter where Haley and I talk through what we think are some of the the key points and interesting things and and how they have um, affected our thinking as well as any you know comments on the way that the um, the thinking in the text has changed since since prior editions or things that just sort of stuck out to us and then we'll um, we'll have for each chapter an episode where we bring in a guest to to talk through some of those uh, issues as well as you know sort of how the the chapter and the text uh, fit into the work that they are doing um, and so our hope is that this will be a really a useful guide not a guide, but a useful um, uh, podcast series for those students who are currently working through the the text as part of your doctoral, maybe even master's work, um, or just anyone who's interested in thinking through some of the the key concepts that are discussed in the, the text. So with that in mind, we are extremely pleased that our very first guest, to kick off the season is uh, Dr. Ken Rothman, the author of all, and author of all four editions, but the sole author of the very first edition. Um, uh, Ken and I are um, colleagues at Boston University, and so I've had the pleasure of, of getting to know Ken over uh, many years since since my days as a even a master's student. But um, uh, Dr. Rothman is undoubtedly one of the most well-known epidemiologists in the world and has made innumerable contributions to the field. So as I mentioned, he was the sole author of the first edition of of Modern Epidemiology and has been a a co-author on all of the subsequent editions. Uh, He is professor of epidemiology at Boston University, as well as a distinguished fellow at RTI International. 
His research has included work on epidemiology of cancer, cardiovascular disease, birth defects, environmental epidemiology, pharmaceutical products, pretty much, you know, across the board, um, tons of, of interesting things, as well as some really interesting methodological and conceptual and ethical issues in, in epidemiology. In addition to modern epidemiology, he is also the author of Epidemiology and Introduction and is the founding editor of Epidemiology. Uh, he received the American Public Health Association's Abraham Lilienfeld Award in 2002, and he was also the recipient of the Society for Epidemiologic Research's Research Career Accomplishment Award in 2017. So we are very delighted to have you on Serious Epidemiology. Welcome, Ken. Great to be here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So we're, we are thrilled to have you on our, our kickoff episode. But with all our guests, we do like to start with a few questions first that are not our, our serious, hard-hitting journalism questions so that people can get to know you a bit better. And I wanted to ask you, I know that you are somebody who travels or, or, or has traveled quite a bit. Are there any places that you have traveled to that you are, are just top on your list of places that you've been? Or are there any places that you haven't been to that you, you absolutely really want to get to? Well, let's see. I, there, if you ask me where have I been that uh, I thought was a great place to be, I, uh, there's no question I'd have to answer the Galapagos. That was We spent a week on a boat that was kind of a replica of uh, the Beagle. Uh, it was a wow. sailboat with you know a few other tourists and some nature guides. But it was it was uh, truly remarkable. Just that sounds to, fantastic. It's easy to lose yourself in the uh, spirit of what Darwin was discovering. And, and, you know, you think about the planet and stuff that you don't get to think about most of the time. I will definitely have to add that onto my, my list of places. I, I get the sense it's not an easy place to get to. It's, it's harder than it used to be. I mean, we, uh, apparently there are, there are restrictions since I've been there. and uh, That was more than 20 years ago. And the restrictions mean that there are fewer, fewer tourists that are trying to protect it more. But you can still, can still go, and I would recommend it. Uh, another place I've been, which is easier to get to if you're in Europe, is just a place I visited one day that I, I, I felt was also a remarkable place. I don't know why I reacted that way to this place, but it's just outside Rome. It's a, it's an archaeological museum called uh, Ostia Antica. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No, that's, I haven't. That's, that's the uh, original port of Rome. Uh, it's actually not on the shore because the shoreline has, has moved in the 2,000 years ago, uh, 2,000 years since this uh this was the active port. And uh, they've excavated and they have streets and buildings and uh, you can walk through what was a small city, a busy place, and imagine yourself transported 2,000 years and walking through this, this little metropolis, which is now just a park. But it's a little subway ride or bus ride outside of Rome and worth the trip. It sounds amazing. I mean, so the, the the airport is sort of out towards the water. And I wondered, is it, you know, you take the train in and I remember, you know, passing lots of places. Is it is it out in that direction? That's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure. It might actually be in a, a different direction, north-south. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, I'll definitely add that to my my list of places. I was um, um, I was preparing for you to say that your bucket list place is Niagara Falls. <laughs> well, apparently it is. <laughs> the place that's... that you're dying to get to. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, um, <laughs> that's coming up. It's no Galapagos, but you know, it I is a natural confess, wonder. I have seen Niagara Falls. I just haven't been there. I've okay. seen it from the air. Fair enough. Oh yeah. I'm sure it's a great to view from planes. Well, if you're sitting at the window and you're going in that direction, you look out and there it is. Absolutely. Okay. So that, that takes care of the travel portion of our show to lead gently into the, what we're going to be talking about. I wondered, are there any papers in epidemiology that you consider to be so important that you read them, you know, every year or, or go back to them quite frequently? Well, I go back to many papers that I need to refer to because I can't remember <laughs> things that I should be remembering. But do you, do you mean rereading in a kind of reverential way? Well, either that you get something new out of them every time you read it or just find that it's, you know, it's so important, as you say, you want to go back to it to just refresh your memory on. I do remember rereading on more than one occasion John Grant's book. I gave a, a talk at SER once and it focused on lessons from John Grant. And he had one publication, you know, he was a haberdasher, although the meaning of that word has changed slightly, but uh, he what, just had Wait, a, I thought a, a haberdasher was a, a hat maker? I think it, in his time in London, it meant uh, you you had a general store with, that sold oh, okay. li- little things. <laughs> but he had a fondness for data, and he uh, his book is is really such a pleasure to read. And I've gotten the same kind of pleasure rereading stuff from Jon Snow. But th- these are classic works, and I don't imagine that you have to go back and keep rereading them. You just just read them because they're fun. There is one paper that I do think is worth reading from time to time. It's more than a, a paper, though. It's a collection of lectures that were published by a man named Lancelot Hogben. Many people in epidemiology would not have heard of him, but he, he was what we would call a polymath. He was really brilliant in many fields. He was a biologist, though, and he understood genetics very well, but he lived during a time before we even uh, understood the role of DNA. So it's remarkable. And the, the part that I like the best is the part that influenced me the most, and that was his understanding of the interplay between genes and environment. In fact, the the title of his lectures, this was an invited series of lectures in 1933, and the title was Nature and Nurture. And you can find it online. It's a good read. So I, I suspect you're right that most people probably don't know that name. I do know the name, but only because I've heard you talk about him. And that is not a, it's not a name one forgets very easily. So I'll tell you how I uh, came across him. It was because I was a student of and later a colleague and friend of Brian McMahon. And Brian was, he was a student at the University of Birmingham getting his his second degree. And Lancelot Hogben was one of his advisors. It was on, like on his committee. And so Brian had a lot of stories about Lancelot Hogben. I found out there was a, a book about Hogben. I think the title is Lancelot Hogben, a scientific humanist. He had a very colorful life. He was against the eugenics movement, which was so controversial. He went to, I think it was South Africa, in fact, and fought against apartheid oh, wow. for quite a while. He had he and his family got separated during World War II over a bunch of crazy circumstances. 
anyway, the the subtitle of this book about him is an unauthorized autobiography, which is hard to parse, but it turns out that it was an autobiography that was written by his son from his notes, and he actually, uh, I think he was against publishing them, at least mm-hmm. during his life, and so it came out posthumously. Definitely something that all our listeners should look into. So the reason I wanted to ask you that question about things that you go back to is because what we wanted to talk to you about is a text, of course, that many of us go back to rather frequently, and certainly we probably at a minimum reread it each time there is a new edition, which is your and eventually your co-author's textbook, Modern Epidemiology, which we are basing our season of this podcast on. And so I wanted just to start off, can you talk a little bit about what originally motivated you to write the first edition of Modern Epidemiology? Sure. Well, I was teaching epidemiology and, uh, you know, a few years post-training and suddenly given the task of teaching an intermediate methods course. So you've got to learn your stuff when you're asked to teach it. We all know that's the best motivator. And I had to put together class notes and readings. And it was my first time teaching. I'd taken one course and how to teach, which was helpful. But it occurred to me that I should try to organize my teaching notes. And so at some point I realized, well, it would be nice if we had a textbook and we didn't have one that corresponded to what I was teaching at the time. So I thought, all right, I'll roll up my sleeves and see if I can produce one. So that was that was kind of how it evolved. And I think that's a common story that Uh, you're teaching and you need to organize material that you're teaching and it helps you do that and eventually will help students and other readers. But I had another motivation and that is it had already been quite a few years that I had realized that there was a fundamental problem, not only in the way a lot of epidemiology was conducted and interpreted, but more pervasively throughout the biomedical sciences. And that was this reliance on this really dumb tool called significance testing that was leading to very bad interpretations in very surprisingly high proportion of times, and even in the best journals. And I wrote about this, and I was teaching this, but I I felt that this may never go away, may never change, but if we're really serious about doing better, then we need to do two things. We need to change the way journals work, because people often said, well, it may not be the smartest thing to do or the best thing to do, but that's what journals expect me to do. That's what reviewers demand. So I thought we have to change the way journals work and we have to have textbooks that tell us that this is not the right thing to do. So my secondary motive for this textbook was that I was going to try to make it a comprehensive book of the methods that epidemiologists should be using that corresponded to what I was teaching, but also a Trojan horse in a, in a way, in that it would be improving the interpretation of data and the conduct of analyses by explaining what was wrong with significance testing and offering alternatives. So that played a, I didn't realize that played so much of a role in your original desire to write the text. Well, some motivation for me because I, I just, I was bothered by, by this every day. You, go, you just pick up a journal or you talk to people and it was troubling that they were relying on something that didn't really make sense. 
And so when the when the first edition came out, did it have the kind of impact that it has today? Or, you know, I mean, now it's sort of considered standard text for anyone who's going beyond their intro courses. Did it take off really quickly? Well, I, I don't know if I'm the right one to ask about that. I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I know that a lot of people used it, and I was glad for that. I mean, in part, it was because there wasn't a lot of competition. There were one or two books. There was maybe a little bit more specialized. There were a lot of more introductory books. But on the level of this book, there was only maybe one text that was an alternative that had come out just before this one, the one by Kleinbaum, Cooper, and Morgenstern, which is a good book, but it was a little bit more statistical, a little bit more technical, and didn't really have the same approach that I had in mind when it came to significance testing. So I think it left room for my book. And there's, I think there's sometimes an advantage to have a single author text. You have less compromising. I mean, that, that has both drawbacks and advantages. But mine was single authored, so I could do it the way I wanted. And of course, I got a lot of input from other people. But in the end, I could make the decisions. And when you say you could do it the way you wanted, I mean, so you, you described that this sort of evolved from your teaching notes. So did you have a very clear plan for the first edition of the book? Or did it sort of evolve as you were writing it? Well, I outlined the topics, and each one was a project. I think there were 16 chapters in the first edition, and I set a schedule, and I gave myself, I think, two months to draft each chapter. So I worked nights and weekends and put in a lot of time to get a draft, a workable draft of a topic within those two months. And then when the calendar flipped, I would start on the next topic. It was pretty grueling, but I figured if, if I didn't do that, I, I wouldn't get a draft. So that's six chapters a year. It's a couple, two and a half years or so to just to draft it. And then, of course, there's re- revisions and lots of examples that had to be worked through. I had to write programs to do calculations that I didn't have easy ways to do. And I remember working on it. My home computer was a Commodore 8040 or something like that. Oh, I, yeah. I remember those. Yeah, and I learned how to write programs and get these examples checked because I I wanted to be really confident in them. And so I have to say, I've actually read, it was the second edition that was assigned first time I came across it, but then I went back and read the first edition because a number of my colleagues had developed their epidemiologic thinking on the first edition. And so I really enjoyed going back and reading the first edition. But in the evolution of the tech, it has changed quite a bit over time. But to me, anyway, it feels like the biggest change was from the first edition to the second edition. How did you decide that you were going to bring in Sandy Greenland for the, the second edition? And do you agree with my take that that was a really big change from edition one to edition two? I do. That was probably the biggest change in the history of the, all the editions is to invite a co-author. But I wrestled with that for a while. If I had continued with a second edition as a single authored text, I mean, that would have kind of condemned me to a future of repeating what I went through for the first edition. And also, it would have been limiting because the field was growing so quickly that it was really beyond my capabilities just to understand all of the features. Of it. I mean, Sander had vast methodologic knowledge, stellar reputation. I had known him since the mid-70s. So he was the, the natural person to invite for this. And I thought about it, but it didn't take much thought because I realized that if he would agree to that, that would launch the book in a new direction, but a direction that would ensure some longevity. You know, he would bring to it what was missing from what I could contribute. Of course, 
course, when you have uh, two authors and both of us had different writing styles and so forth, you know, that changes things. So I understood that, expected that, and that is what happened. It was a 12-year gap between the first edition and the second edition. So the first edition had been out there a long time. And by the time the second edition came out, it was like a new book in the field. Although a lot of material from the first edition had been carried forward, Sander made his mark on it. And overall, I thought it, it accomplished what I had hoped. So, of course, nothing is perfect. It had plenty of flaws, as did the first edition. But I, I thought that if it was going to continue having a life as a uh, resource for epidemiologists, it needed him. And, it well, you know the progression. We can have the fourth edition with four authors, and the third edition had three. So I don't, I don't think we can extrapolate too far <laughs> in terms of that progression. And nobody thought seriously yet about a fifth edition, but... Anyway, the, uh, the field has gotten much more complicated. I think the first edition was 300 and some pages, and the fourth edition is almost 1,200, maybe. Yeah, it is. It has certainly grown throughout the editions, but it seems to me it keeps adding on really useful information. And in reading through the parts of the fourth edition that we have read so far, it, it also seems like, you know, sort of some of the ways that the framing of the material that was in some of the earlier chapters has changed a bit in ways that I think have kept up with the way that people are seeing things in the field really nicely. You know, as you've moved into the third and the fourth editions, do you see that there have been big changes sort of in the way that you think? Think about some of these fundamental concepts, like the earlier chapters are about measures of disease frequency and measures of, of effect. Has your thinking and the, and the way that this is presented in the book changed dramatically? Well, I, I think the content of the book now goes way beyond my thinking. I'm, I'm just another student of epidemiology, reading the book and trying to learn from the people who contributed. And as you know, starting with the second edition, we had a, a section of the book that has gotten bigger and bigger that gives summaries of the epidemiologic thinking and concepts and methods in a number of the specific fields within epidemiology. So this part of the book, you basically learn from the experts in every one of these areas. And the other sections of the book are going into methods that I never even imagined back when I wrote the first edition. So I'm, I'm a student of those methods, like most of my readers. I can't claim to be an expert. No, but I, and I think that's why it's nice that you've brought in more authors with, with different perspectives over time. Obviously, I think you know that the textbook is incredibly widely used in training programs, particularly at the, the higher levels. And the book has sort of achieved almost cult status in, in the way you talk to other particularly doctoral students, there's sort of a shared sense of this text and in many ways unites the experiences that we're all going through in our learning. Has there been anything that surprised you in, in terms of the reaction to the book and the additions as they've come out over time? Well, I think you're actually in a better position to judge how the book lands with the epidemiologic audience than I am, because what I hear back is certainly going to be filtered. You know, I, I know people use it. I've seen it in offices, and I like that. <laughs> but I can't comment. I mean, when you say call status, I just don't know what to make of that. Well, I can assure you, it, it definitely has that I'd status. Like to hear I, more. <laughs> I can say I remember reading the text for the first time and feeling like, okay, now I'm at least sort of at the beginning stages of being in the in the epidemiology world that I did not feel like when I had just gone through my introductory courses. 
One thing uh, we've loved about talking to some other folks about the chapters is everyone has their story about the modern epi textbook, whether they have their, you know, their edition that they highlighted when they were a doctoral student. Do they keep it on their workshelf? Do they have it with them all the time? It's it really has reached cult status to us, even if you don't necessarily feel that same way about it. It definitely has. Well, I'll tell you a small story without naming names, but there was a fellow who was, I think he was on a train and he saw somebody reading modern epidemiology. And this fellow was actually a student of mine in one of my classes at Boston University. And so he went over and he said, oh, I see you're reading that book. He said, I know the author. And it started up a conversation and um, this fellow and the young woman, they hit it off and they got married. (laughs) So So the book can take credit for at least one marriage. That's right. All right. That's the the one I know about at least. Okay, well, if any any listeners have any other stories of marriages or having met through the textbook, we would love to hear about those. So I'm curious your thoughts, and you know, you may have the same reaction to this as the, as the question before, but I, my way of thinking about it, the different editions as they've come out over time have in some ways cataloged the changes in the way that people think about epidemiology over time. But in other ways, they've driven the way that people think about epidemiology because so many of us have been trained on this text. So do you think about this text sort of as a a training textbook, or do you think about it more as a resource that people would go to when they're looking for, okay, now I, you know, I want to use a particular method. I'm going to go look it up in modern epidemiology, or does it play both roles, do you think? Well, I would imagine, I would hope that it would be both. It's hard to imagine anyone picking up the book and just reading it from one end to the other as a um, as a read. We are. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we absolutely are. More power to you. <laughs> so, okay, now I can imagine it, but it still sounds daunting. So I, I, I guess I would lean a little more to the resource side than the uh, in the training, although I guess as training it's used still in, in selected pieces and not necessarily read in sequence. And that's fine. I mean, that's what it's certainly evolved to become, and that's fine with me. I mean, the, the idea, starting with the second edition, inviting a co-author and then moving in that direction is that, is this work going to have a life of its own or is it just going to be something that is tied to me? And I thought, well, it's probably be a better thing if it had its own life and it wasn't just me, my product. And that's why it went since 1998. And I think that means it's, it's, a, it's a resource, but it's dynamic. It's going to be changing and continuing. It's a lot to keep up with. That actually, that you're saying that reminds me of, of something that's written on page five of the books. I'm just going to read it to you and I'd love to hear your thought on it. The last third of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century have seen rapid growth in the understanding and synthesis of epidemiologic concepts. The main stimulus for this conceptual growth seems to have been accelerated the growth of epidemiologic research. That seems like related to what Matt was just asking you about how it goes both ways, how epidemiologic research is accelerating and then the methods need to catch up and then the, it keeps accelerating. So where do you see this book as as part of that evolution? You know, for a lot of us, this is the book that we train on and sort of the springboard for all of the research that we go on to do and then, you know, come back to it when we need to learn more. How do you see this book as a sort of dynamic piece of, of that whole research process? 
Well, I think if this book didn't exist, then something like it would have emerged from somewhere else, from someone else. I mean, there would certainly be something like it, even if I hadn't done this, uh, or I hadn't started with the first edition. I've often wondered why was there such an explosive growth of epidemiologic methods starting mid-20th century? And I think it's multi-causal like everything else, and some of the causes is pretty clear. It's kind of like a luxury for a society to engage in epidemiological search. It may seem like a necessity to epidemiologists, but for a society, it's something you do when you can afford to do it, when you're not dealing with crisis after crisis after crisis with existential demands. So it takes a certain amount of reserve for society to start doing that, but it also takes data takes good data. So we go back and John Grant couldn't have done what he did without the bills of mortality, which were being collected for decades and decades. Other epidemiologists have made their mark by uh, collecting data. Maybe snow would fall under that category. But in the 20th century, we started amassing lots of data for various reasons. And that lent itself, or not only data, but records, that lent itself to the opportunity to start conducting research, made it easier to do epidemiologic research. But that didn't mean that it made it easier to do good epidemiologic research. For that, we needed to understand how to do it. And so I think that these factors kind of combined to, well, you know, I think back and I remember when I studied epidemiology, I think there were maybe 12 schools in the U.S. and very few outside the U.S. where you could study epidemiology and and actually get a doctorate. And the number of graduates that are being turned out today is just amazing in terms of the sheer numbers. And decade after decade during my career, I've, I've wondered, you know, how can we absorb all these epidemiologists? I'm worried that we wouldn't have jobs for them, but we seem to have jobs for them somehow. At some point, of course, <laughs> that'll have to change. But up to this point, surprisingly, society seems to be able to put them to work. And it's just astounding, this growth in the field. And I think that that's really what stimulates the need for books like this. Absolutely. So I, I appreciate you talking to us about modern epidemiology. Before we finish up, I do want to just mention your introductory epi textbook, which you wrote a number of years back. I remember it came out when I was, I think I was finishing my doctoral program, the textbook that, I, as you know, is sometimes referred to as Baby Rothman. And can you just say a little bit about why you decided to, after already having written the definitive text in the in the sort of advanced field, you decided to go back and write an intro text? Well, the, the introductory field is very different. There are 100 books when I wrote this one, and there are probably 500 now. But people told me that although they appreciated the second edition, it had gotten much larger, and it was multi-authored now, many contributors. And it was a certain nostalgia, at least that way it was conveyed to me, about the first edition. Well, the first edition was written when things were simpler because as time has gone by, it got more complicated. And so it was shorter and simpler and single authored. And I said, well, we can bring that back. I could bring that back, but it would be an intro book. It would just deal in more basic stuff and be a way to get people interested in epidemiology and see it as a start. So I thought about that and I thought, yeah, I think I'd like to give that a try. So that's that's what got me started on that. And that's been through two editions and maybe a third is going to come sometime. 
And I just want to say that the advice that you gave us when when I was a doctoral student preparing for my qualifying exams was that the best way to prepare for your qualifying exams is to write your own introductory textbook. Um, And I wonder, I've always wondered, because I didn't want to ask you at the time, whether you meant that literally or more sort of figuratively, like bullet out your thoughts on what should go in there versus did you literally mean we should write our own textbook? I don't remember giving that advice. I think you You did. <laughs> okay, fair enough. That could, uh, that could definitely be. Why would I invite competition from experts <laughs> like you? <laughs> I guess it was a metaphorical statement. If if I said something like that, that had to be what I what I intended. <laughs> well, I always thought it was it, it was actually advice we followed. But we did not write our own text, but we did we definitely did bullet out what we thought should go into that and the key points. So I thought it was quite useful advice. <laughs> okay, then I'm happy to own it. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Ken. It's been it's been a real pleasure talking with you, and I we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for inviting me. It's been great to chat with you, and uh, look forward to listening to the rest of the series. For those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in. June of next year in Chicago. It also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some really great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference with Ellie Murray and Lucy D'Agostino McGowan. If you like this podcast, we think you'll really like that one. So just a reminder that the views expressed in this podcast by both the hosts and any of our guests are our and their views alone and do not represent the views or opinions of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. We really appreciate you listening and look out for our next episode.